Heavy metal detoxification is a tricky process to treat naturopathically because of the issues of high dose absorption, distribution and retention of the required supplements. How do we overcome these barriers to successful treatment? Dr Chris Shade is an environmental chemist specialising in human detoxification and removal of metallic and organic toxins by using specialised liposomal nutrients which bypass the usual intestinal absorption route. Hear Chris Shade to discover how to optimise the metabolic biochemistry needed for detoxification, as well as the enzymes and transporters that work with it. You'll understand how to use nutrients and plant compounds to restore the natural detoxification system, and you'll learn how to target specific nutrients at gene promoter regions to switch on detoxification, transport, and antioxidant functions. Dr. Shade will be speaking at the 5th Bioceuticals Research Symposium to be held on the 20th to the 23rd of April, 2017. To register, please click on the Education tab at bioceuticals.com.au. FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me all the way from Colorado, USA is Dr. Chris Shade, who obtained his bachelor degree in pharmacy and then his master's in environmental and aqueous chemistry from Lehigh University, Pennsylvania. He then earned a PhD from the University of Illinois, where he studied the environmental and analytical chemistries of mercury, as well as advanced aquatic chemistry. During his PhD work, Dr. Shade patented analytical technology for mercury speciation analysis and later founded Quicksilver Scientific in order to commercialise this technology, which he runs today. Shortly after starting Quicksilver Scientific, Dr. Shade turned his focus to the human aspects of mercury exposure and toxicity and the human detoxification system and how we can enhance that. Chris has since developed specific clinical analytical techniques for measuring mercury exposure and a system of products to remove metallic and organic toxins and pollutants by upregulation of innate detoxification biochemistry. His current focus is at the intersection of neuroinflammatory issues, immune dysregulation, toxicity and infection, specifically how to peel away the layers of overlapping dysfunction in the sick individual until you get to a point at which the system writes itself. I warmly welcome you back, I've got to say, to FX Medicine. We spoke some time ago, so welcome, Chris Shade. How are you? Um, very good. Thank you very much, Andrew. It's always great to be here with you guys and uh, to share information with Australia. Oh, yeah. Now, I've got to say, I was thinking about saying sunny Colorado, but I know that it's not sunny over there. It's winter. And you've had some mm -hmm. some decent dumps of snow over there, haven't you? Well, we have, but it's uh, actually totally sunny right now. And uh, I think in Fahrenheit, we're 60 degrees right now. So <laughs> we've had a great few weeks, and it is sunny. And, oh, okay, uh, nice. Uh, 
Nose only in the mountains. Good stuff. Well, you watch what we've got for you in Australia because you're coming out here soon to speak at the 2017 Biocidical Symposium. And we're going to be exploring this and other issues with regards to heavy metal detoxification because it's something that everybody says, yeah, yeah, I've done that. But you do it in a vastly different way, in a really different way using things like liposomes. Now, this is something you're quite famous for. I need to go back. I need to do this back to the future thing. Where did liposomes begin? Well, well liposomes came out of uh, Professor Bangham's, uh, I'm trying to think of where he was. I think he was at Harvard. And this is way back in 1965. Uh, God. And Alec Bangham, yeah, it was in Cambridge, and they were doing, they were studying cell membranes, and they were doing models of cell membranes, and they were developing them with phospholipids, and they found that it made these nice spheres, and that they could entrap substances within the liposome, both in the aqueous core of it, the water-based core, and in the cell membranes. And so it started a long, long time ago. However, it did not really take off until recently. Uh, the original liposomes that they were making were very large. They weren't very stable. They didn't know much about how to stabilize those membranes, how to shear them down to size. And so the, the first commercial use was really in cosmetics and cosmeceuticals for getting vitamin C and vitamin A uh, under the skin. And, and so, I mean, it's, I've heard of... Um, you know, pegylated liposomal doxorubicin, for instance, you know, cancer drugs that are used for liposomal delivery because what they do is they they enable a much lesser dose to get into the patient and therefore giving an extremely toxic drug in much lesser dose so that you don't get the bad side effects from it. That's always been the, the catch cry of liposomes, but there's been, there's been some other issues with liposomes. Is that is that right? Yeah, well, the use in in chemotherapies was probably the biggest uh, use of it. There was also some antimicrobials, some antifungals that were done that way. That and it, you're correct, protecting the body from the damaging aspect of the uh, of what it's carrying until it can get to the area where uh, where they're supposed to work. And these areas, like in tumors, are very very vascular. There's uh, they're highly vascularized, and it's a very leaky vasculature, and there's a lot of inflammation there. And so the liposomes tended to accumulate there and would pop open there. And so it, these were all for use in a IV type of setting. And some of these earlier uh, versions of the liposomes were okay for IV, but when they'd take them orally, they didn't really work. And it wasn't until we developed these very advanced very, very small liposomes with the right membrane, uh, the right uh, blend of phospholipids and uh, different other co-surfactants. There's certain pegylated compounds that can be used. And when we get those sizes and those membrane compositions just right, you start the absorption of these compounds right in the oral cavity. And you can get anywhere from two to tenfold increases in bioavailability very easily. And then for certain compounds like curcumin, we're just doing a clinical on that and we're expecting uh, several tens of fold, uh, up to a hundred fold increase in bioavailability. So You're kidding me, really? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Because curcumin is 
Curcumin is barely absorbed at all. Yeah, yeah. And so it's it, the big marketing you can get a significant game. amount, and it's a very big jump in bioavailability from uh, a regular capsule. And so it's very exciting uh, where the technology is going today, as long as the products are actually made correctly and are in these uh, size ranges where they're small enough to get that enhanced absorption. And as long as the formulators are getting the whole aspect of the chemistry so that the products are stable. And that's, that's kind of rare these days. Okay, but you, you spoke about size and we're talking about nanoparticles here. I know there's, uh, I remember a few years ago, there was a lot of fear regarding that nanoparticle thing. I, th- I think it was mainly to do with titanium dioxide with sunscreens. Um, exactly. Oh, yeah, exactly. that's right. Okay, all right. So, so tell me the issues then surrounding nanoparticles. What's, what's going on? Yeah, so, you know, first there has to be a sort of a broader discussion of what nano means. And, uh, in, you know, 10, 20 years ago, people that were making, uh, often these were catalytic particles, uh, like the titanium dioxide, silver dioxide, zinc oxides. Uh, if they made these particles super, super small in a few tens of nanometers, they found that they were much more active because they had a very high surface area and they were more catalytic. Right. Uh, now, unfortunately, they're also easy, more easily taken up into a biological system and stuck in the biological system, and they can be catalytic there and create uh, free radical damage. And so that was something we, you, you want to stay away from. But in the case, oh, and, and while they were making these, these catalysts, they decided that anything under 100 nanometers would be called nanotechnology. Right. Yeah. And that was just a line in the sign. They just had to make that to distinguish these small particles from something that was, say, eight or 900 nanometers or a micrometer that didn't have those catalytic effects. So they made that line, but the line didn't really mean anything. And, you know, in the drummed-up fears in people's minds, if it's nano, then it's going to kill you, and if it's not, then it isn't. Well, that means that a 98-nanometer particle is dangerous and one that's 105 isn't. So that whole thing was kind of made up. And in these sub-100 nanometer size ranges, there is no danger whatsoever to these lipid-based particles. In fact, the liposome looks almost identical to something called a chylomicron. A chylomicron is something that you make in your GI tract or or right right inside of your GI tract to accumulate fatty acids Mm, and mm. put them in little particles and move them throughout your body. And you make these in the sub-100 nanometer range, and it's just phospholipids on the outside, fatty acids in the middle, just like the liposomes and nanoemulsion particles that we make. And so in this area of phospholipid chemistry, there's no worry about this size. In fact, that size is the size where you get that uh, fast intraoral uptake, and then after you swallow, you're, you're absorbing through the capillaries in your stomach and your upper GI, and you have to get these things in rapidly or they're going to be degraded in your GI tract. So these are the size particles that you want to get. And fortunately, when you get the particles that small, the solutions become somewhat transparent. And so you'll be able to see if you're looking at liposomes on the market, if they're very milky or pasty and you can't see through them, then you know they're in the 
uh, two, three, four, five hundred nanometer range. And the ones that are transparent, you can see through them. Those are in the hundred nanometer and below range, and that's where you want to be. Okay, so when we're talking about a particle of of fatty acid assimilation, free fatty acid assimilation, um, versus a product that's in a bottle, got to be kept on the shelf. How is that? different how like how do you keep the things stable if it's not in a digestive like a dynamic process of digestion well uh getting the right chemistry is how you keep it stable and that's having this ideal blend of the phospholipids phosphatidylcholine is the main one that you use and uh sometimes we use different essential oils and what are called co-surfactants and there's one uh, that we use called tocopherosilane or TPGS, which is a vitamin E attached to a polyethylene glycol 1000. And polyethylene glycol is another thing that people worry about. There's a lot of fear around that. And for, some, for good reasons, there are some cheap pegs, they're called for short, hmm. which uh, which are not very good for you. These ones are made on a very large industrial scale. But the, the TPGS is a super high purity one, and it really creates the stability in the membranes that you need to have these long stability particles both in the bottle and uh, when you take them stable going into your body and in, in circulation. Okay, okay. But a um, couple of things there, I've, I've got to sort of ask a couple of devil's advocate questions here. Then the first one you mentioned was phosphatidylcholine. And I know that I don't have this opinion. People talk about, um, you know, uh, phosphatidylcholine from, from soy, therefore it is soy. I don't necessarily believe that's a correct association. However, um, I understand that people would be concerned about that. So like, what's the issue with phosphatidylcholine with or from lecithin, from soy? Yeah, well, essentially there is no issue, but people believe that there is. Oh, and, so you're, and you're the same as me. it goes <laughs> back to, uh, there was a Mercola article that spread a lot of fear about soy-based phospholipids. And what what you really have to know is where you're going on the purity scale. And so most of the negative aspects of soy are in the proteins. And uh, phospholipids and phospholipids are derived from lecithin. Lecithin comes from oil processing, and it's a sort of quasi-water-soluble aspect of the oils when they're making soy oil. So this is separated out of the oil, so you're already going away from the proteins. Uh, and there are some sort of quasi-estrogenic compounds that, that will come across in this first grades of lecithin that come out, and those are about 15 to 20% PC. And then what we do is we get more and more purified versions of that until uh, most of the products that we use are 90 to 95% pure phosphatidylcholine extracted out of this lecithin. And at that point, there is absolutely no protein left over from the soy. And in fact, we've taken our the soy-based PCs that we use and run them out for protein analysis. And there are no soy proteins detected. There's, of course, no GMO genes detected. And there's none of these uh, estrogenic compounds are detected anymore as well. And so when you've gone to that degree of purity, you don't have any of these aspects of the plant that could have been negative at one point. And in fact, these are used uh, as a source for injectables too. 
so when it comes down to the PC from the soy, there is no problem at all. Uh, and also, you know, mostly due to customer demand, uh, the market has changed, and we have a lot of these sourced from sunflower now. So ah, probably right, okay. uh, three quarters of the products are from sunflower PC, yep. and the other quarter are from soy. But there is no problem with, ah. the, with the soy-based components. Gotcha. Okay. So when you're talking about the pegs, like they weren't they from castor oil? Is that is that right? Oh, no. Pegs are synthetically made. Now, when you're talking about what kind of uh, what kind of pegs are out there, you've got, like, people know polysorbate 80. Uh, but then there's this stuff called ethoxylated castor oil, and that was used for making micelles. Uh, there's one company in Canada and California, and they're in Australia, too, and they make these micelles out of pegylated castor oil. And pegylated castor oil is a very cheap, uh, very industrial type of uh, surfactant. Uh, and it, whereas the, the TPGS was, uh, was vitamin E, it was a water-solubilized vitamin E source for children that were cholestatic, who had liver disease and were not able to make bile and therefore could not absorb vitamin E. So this was used uh, as a soluble form of vitamin E. It was very expensive. It was screened to have the, le- the, the lowest amount of uh, contaminant uh, in it uh, during the synthesis process. Hmm. And it had the highest, uh, the highest safety rating of all the different pegs. And in fact, it's about 10 times more expensive than most of the peg sources out there. In fact, it was so clean that Environmental Working Group, they have a 1 to 10 hazard rating, and uh, the phosphatidylcholine, the purified PC, gets a 1, which is the the, the lowest hazard rating, and the TPGS also gets a 1, the tocopherciline, whereas even raw lecithin is a 3 to 4, the the ethoxylated castor oils and the pegylated castor oils are fives and polysorbates are three. And so uh, TPGS uh, came out as clean in their ranking for safety as Pure PC did. And so that's why we use that. Right. I gotcha. Okay. So, all right. So there's some decent ranking, some responsible ranking of these sort of raw materials that go into the making of these for both drug and supplement delivery. And I guess the issue that you need to look at is where do people get their raw materials from? Like if they're using, if they're using raw lecithin, that's a three or a four. Is that right? Or yeah, is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah. Raw lecithin is very cheap, but it's just not that great. It's the first crude product uh, separated out of the oil manufacturing, but there's there's gold in them there hills. And right. You just have to mine it out of there. All <laughs> oh, right. Okay. Now, what about the the challenges and the the safety or the quality issues, if you like, of keeping a liposome together? Because I my understanding with regards to drug delivery, like I'm a registered nurse and I remember reading about the, the drug delivery of, of liposomes with the cancer drugs. I think there was an antifungal one as well, amphotericin B. Is it is that right? Right. Yeah, that's all. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and there's guide. Yeah, there's. I was. I remember reading the guidelines and and um, basically, the whole issue of the quality of the molecule had to do with peg. 
But yeah. I remember, you know, advances. I remember these challenges of, of liposomal delivery, that sort of thing. Right, right. And it did. You know, there's – you need this blend of uh, – oh, yeah, circum. Yeah, circum. I have that. Advances and challenges of liposomal-assisted drug delivery. Oh, okay. There you and go. And getting <laughs> – Getting the stability to the membrane is the key, and and the key lies in the right ratio of the phospholipids to the peg. People are afraid of the peg, but they're never going to have the advanced delivery without a little bit bit of it. And when we've gone we've gone to the length of of securing this very high safety, very biocompatible source of peg, and it's also very expensive. Uh, and finding exactly the right ratios of the phospholipid to the peg to make this stable product. I mean, you can get, there's so many products that you can get on the market now that are so-called liposomals. And if you pour them out and you look at them, you see they're separating into different layers. A good quality liposome, when you pour that out, you should, it should look the same all the way through. And if you leave it sit out, you won't see anything floating to the top. If you put it in a centrifuge, you won't see it break into different layers. It'll be one thing all the way through. And when it does that, it means that you've balanced the components of the membrane. You balance those with also the water, the glycerin, the ethanol. Every one of those for each different compound has a slightly different ratio that makes it stable. And you're going to have to have these things in there. If you want these advanced deliveries, you're going to have ethanol. You're going to have some PEG. Uh, right. And if you just want phospholipids, and a compound mixed together, well, you can get that, but it's not really going to give you an advanced delivery. Okay. But when we're talking about drug delivery, you know, a lot of pharmaceutical work has gone into that and you know exactly how much it's going to be, you know, they work it out by body weight and, and, and um, uh, a volume of body weight, lean body mass in some instances. But when you're talking about nutrients, just how far developed are we? What what can we say that we can get, let's say, as a broad increase in absorption? You know, is, are we talking well, 10 times as good or? Uh, well, it depends on the, on the compound. So if you were taking something, you know, just, just say you wanted to do liposomal sugar. Well, sugar already has high absorption. And so maybe you wouldn't change the total amount of absorption, but you would change the timing where it would come in much faster. Uh, so it depends on the native molecule and what its absorption is as to how much more absorption you're going to get. So, for instance, uh, with vitamin B12, we were getting about three-fold, three-and-a-half-fold increase in the total absorption. And very importantly, uh, that absorption is happening within, we had, we had elevations off the baseline within four minutes. So it was very immediate as well as having a much higher total, uh, concentration. When you go, we did some pharmacokinetic data with, uh, CBD from hemp extract. Oh, yeah. And there we were comparing to a, uh, pharmaceutical intraoral uh, CBD delivery from GW Pharma, and there we got a six-fold increase in bioavailability, both more rapid uptake as well as a much higher peak absorption. Uh, so we're looking at a six- to ten-fold over just a capsule. 
Uh, and actually next week we're reporting, we're revisiting that study and we're comparing it to just capsules. Uh, then you do, we did some work with hormones and with the hormones, uh, hormones are metabolized by the liver when you take them orally. And so it was looking like it was several hundred fold increase in absorption. Wow. Uh, and I think we'll see that with the curcumin as well that will be, you know, up, up around at least a hundred fold increase in absorption. Uh, so, you know, it just depends how well you absorb it to begin with. And then you go to something like vitamin E, which vitamin C, I'm sorry, which you have pretty good absorption for. Mm. Then you're looking at uh, two, two to three fold increase in absorption. Right. Okay. So can you enlighten me? Because this is something I don't understand is that one of the claims with liposomes is an increased retention in the body because it sort of goes around the lymph, but I don't fully understand how that would retain in the body longer. Am I, am I off track there? In the PK studies, it tends to linger a little bit longer mm. uh, than just a free compound. And they do separate into both blood flow and lymphatic flow, and the lymph is you know five times larger than the blood. And uh, so I think you, you, you do get a longer circulation in the body with a liposome. But, uh, you know, it's not like, it, you know, some people were worrying about getting these accumulations of the liposomes over time, but the liposome components actually get metabolized by your body. So that's not a worry, but you, you, you can have a, a, a little bit of, a, a longer half-life in the body sometimes. Right. It depends because sometimes you're also getting a, a faster uptake and, uh, and so it depends how fast the absorption is. Right. And so when you're talking about fast absorption, you've got a, a glutathione and that's been a real issue yep. with uptake. I remember a two gram, well, there was a, there was a, a double two-edged sword with this conversation. Um, it was a really interesting paper where they looked at a two gram single bolus dose of glutathione to rats and then they couldn't find it. They couldn't see any absorption. But then this guy La Maestro. Um, La Maestro wrote a paper and he just said, you idiots, basically, you're looking, you know, two, three, four hours too late. It's already been metabolized out of the portal system into the liver, into the cells. You're looking in the blood. It's not there. Right. <laughs> so, so what are the issues of absorption, distribution, and how do you use, let's talk about glutathione because you're going to be talking about heavy metal detoxification at the symposium. Let's talk about this sort of issue because it's been a big bugbear with a lot of people who for it's, years they said there's no point using glutathione. Yeah, this is this is a huge issue and it's something that we're trying to get our arms around as well. Uh, so with the, just the glutathione capsules, yeah, they would never see it show up in the blood. Then eventually they got more sophisticated about where they look for it. And they would look to certain proteins in the liver and they saw evidence of it being absorbed and being metabolized and getting into the system and being used, but it wasn't being found as free glutathione in the blood. And uh, a similar thing with the liposomes. People uh, have done a couple of studies and they just don't see it show up right away in the blood. And we had done one where we were instead looking at 
uh, at oxidative stress markers. And we, you know, had a pool of smokers using the liposomal glutathione in a pool using a placebo. And we were able to see the, the oxidative stress markers go down significantly. But it was still, it was hard to measure this, measure the glutathione showing up in the blood. And so there's, there's a big question here as to whether blood's even a good marker for doing that, this. Because yeah. if, they're, if they're spread into blood and lymph because of their nature, then maybe you're only seeing a fraction of what you're absorbing. Uh, if other compounds are just being in the blood and they're not in the lymph, but, but this is distributed. So there, there's, there's a fair amount of unknown still. And uh, we're doing a lot of clinical work this year to, to get after that. We've got a great partner down in Florida that's doing CACA2 studies, and then we're going to do some gene expression and protein translational studies and try to really get at where, where these compounds go in the body, uh, how to optimize the uptake, uh, and how to optimize the effects of these different nutraceuticals. You know, one of the most exciting things when you get these right is that the GI tract often destroys a lot of the compounds on the way in mm. and doesn't destroy them. It changes them. Like yeah. uh, curcumin, uh, it's actually yeah. conjugating glucuronic acid to the curcumin on the way through the GI lumen and into circulation. So you're not really getting much straight curcumin. In. If you look at Chrysin, which was uh, found in cell culture studies to be an aromatase inhibitor and thus prevent the aromatization of testosterone to estrogen. Chrysin worked great in cell culture studies, and then when they give capsules to animals or people, it never worked. They give them tons of it, and it never worked. And that's because the detox system in the GI tract is altering it on the way into the body, and so it's not doing that anymore. Yet we have, uh, this is still uh, some work that we're doing some intellectual property on, we figured out a delivery system for that where it gets in without being altered and it does have this aromatase in inhibition. And we have very clear data on changing testosterone and estrogen ratios. So, uh, and well, and so that's that's another one of the great uses of it. Yeah, so this is my next question is, when you're dealing with liposomes, because of its absorption characteristics and and its pharmacodynamic characteristics, how it's carried around the body, uh, it's not necessarily relevant to look at like blood levels and things like that. You're going to have to look at surrogate markers of the action of that compound, like you talk about an aromatase inhibition. So, for instance, exactly. when you're looking at glutathione, you've then got to look at the marker of, let's say, oxidation. Which one? I don't know. But B12, how, like, what do you, you look at, what, um, uh, homocysteine, mavalonic acid, what, what sort of things do you look yeah, at? Yeah, the, yeah, uh, the MM, is it MMA, MMA? And, uh, yeah. and homocysteine would be good ones. But we were able to see it in the blood still. You know, we did see that big peak in the blood, but here was the interesting thing, and this is why you got to go to markers. We only got a good signal on people who had very high B12 levels already, and if they did not have high blood levels, mm. we didn't see, at first we didn't see much difference between the liposome and the non-liposome, and we're like, what's going on here? And so we started we, with one of the guys who looked like that. We took a 
uh, sample every minute for, no, like every 30 seconds for the first two minutes. And what we saw, or it was first five minutes, and we saw the blood levels go up very quickly and go down very quickly. Right. And to me, that was uh, an indicator that in people who have low B12 to begin with, they had very high activity of the cellular transporters to utilize the B12 because they were starved of it. And so as that B12 came in, it immediately went into the cells and got used. Whereas people who are already, they've been supplementing B12 for a long time and they have high levels to begin with, then we could see the difference between the liposome and the non-liposome. In the blood, yeah. So, yeah, in the blood, it was obvious. And so the people who were starved from it, then we would have to go to something like the, um, uh, what is that, methylmalonic acid? Methylmalonic, yeah, methylmalonic, yeah. Yeah. To me, that just talk, that's just saturation kinetics. What, you know, once you're saturated, it overflows into the blood and, you know, it's a normal metabolite. Yeah. It's going to say, we've got enough in the cells. Thanks. You you guys can take it. Whereas yeah. kind of like the old glutathione story, if you are deficient in it and you need it, it's going to be sucked up into the cells really quickly. So you've got to look at the action that it has. And that, exactly. that, that is that and, surrogate. And, but even with B12, for the people who are low B12, I'm sure you could show a very strong effect on the MMA. Well, I tell you what, I've got an immediate one in my brain. <laughs> a lady, a lady who um, did her PhD on um, the use of vitamin B12, basically as a rescue. Um, indeed, should it become part of standard therapy for um, taxol therapy? Um, because it inhibits the what's called the glove stocking, the peripheral um, nerve destruction caused by the, the oh, yeah. pa- paclitaxel. Yeah. So, um, and they got regression of the paresthesia down to like. Excellent. Oh yeah, like, and that was with just normal B, oral B twelve. Oh, no, it was. Forgive me. That was IM B twelve. Now, my interesting right. thing was if you had somebody who was deficient in B twelve and you gave them liposomal would that have a quicker effect on the rescue of those nerves? I mean, man, that's I an interesting... I think that would be fantastic. Oh. I think you'd get much better compartmental uh, the compartmental penetration, yeah. and especially getting out to those peripheral nerves. And you just... When you look at the kinetics, we have some really cool graphs of the uptake versus a traditional oral... And you see that it is definitely bypassing traditional uptake. It is definitely intraoral uptake. And so it could totally replace IM injections. And it could just be used all the time to rescue that that kind of uh, neuropathic destruction. Yeah. I just want to give a quick shout out to Dr. Janet Schloss, um, her nutritionist and naturopath, who's like incredibly, incredibly talented and humane and a, like an in, just a beautiful practitioner. Um, but I would also like to give a shout out to Henry Osiki, who funded her PhD study in that. Um, so that, you know, there's some interesting work that was done. So all of this sort of started from some, some lowly oral B vitamins and it uh, progressed into something that hopefully will, will become, um, something that can save people's arms and legs. You know, you think about what paresthesia does, if you can't feel a cut, um, you know, it, it's, it's actually treatment, um, restricting, 
um, they have to stop yeah. therapy. So, so right, you imagine right. how many lives that can save. And wow, there's some exciting things in the future. So shout out to both Henry Osiki and definitely my good friend, Janet Schloss, Dr. Janet Schloss, I'm going to say now, because she's earned it. <laughs> so, so Chris, moving on from there, like you've got a lot of history working with mercury, but what about other heavy metals? I mean, we see a lot of other heavy metals like cadmium and lead and lead particularly, like it gets deposited into bones. So you, you, you get a detox and you think you've all, you're all done and dusted. Thanks very much. And then over the next seven years, you'll see this slight rise because the bones are turning yeah. over. What so how how do you manage this? What do you what do you suggest? What what are delegates going to learn at the twenty seventeen Bioceutical Symposium? Well, we're gonna we're gonna talk over the basics of metal detox, and uh, and then we're gonna move into talking about uh, neuroinflammation, and uh, because. It's not just metals. There's all kinds of toxins we have to deal with, and neuroinflammation is really big these days. From uh, dysbiotic toxins, from mold toxins. You know, we have a mold epidemic now that we succeeded in insulating all of our houses and buildings. Now everything's real moldy, and uh, there's a specific path for detoxing where you've got to balance the use of GI binders with uh, liver. Uh, feeding liver processes and balance that with gallbladder and uh, still supporting kidney and how you set up that whole system so that you can drain the toxins out of the body. Uh, and and that's sort of the expansion uh, out of where I talked last time just on how you line up the glutathione system. Now, in relation to the metals, uh, mercury, cadmium, and arsenic will all go very nicely with glutathione system upregulation, and right. we'll discuss the aspects of that. Lead, uh, glutathione system upregulation neutralizes lead toxicity, but it doesn't really export it very well, or it doesn't turn up the export that much unless you're rescuing kidney function a little bit. Uh, and so we do use, here in the States, we use a little bit of liposomal EDTA to speed that up. And really, you know, because lead redistributes over such long periods, mm. it's something that you have to do a little bit of every year. Yeah. Uh, and, it, you know, I really like to encourage people to take on uh, more of a detox lifestyle and not just do it and be done with it. But here, here are my staples. These, this is what I'm going to have in my fridge, and I'm going to use this really for the rest of my time. And you're not going to do it like, you know, when you're in a detox, you're doing it very uh, intensely and you're using high doses and you're very uh, methodical about it. Uh, but then you're going to keep that stuff after that intense period and you're going to use it on a maintenance schedule. And so having glutathione, lipoic acid, vitamin C, having the right GI binders, and just having those in your arsenal over years, period of years, is, is what's really yeah. going to get you to the highest levels of health. Yeah, and of course, you know, like you you mentioned mold and um, endogenous toxins and, uh, and uh, these other organic sort of, dare I call them organic pollutants. Right. Nicole Bildsma um, has spoken a lot on uh, these sorts of issues in Australia. And so I just see this... Um, Prevention being, you know, what is it? An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, that sort of thing. Very hard Absolutely. once you've got these heavy metals in your system, though. It's tough. Uh, they really weaken the system, and there's 
it's really important to understand the interaction between the organisms and the metals. And, uh, you know, I always call them the creatures as a general word for all of the bacteria, viruses, funguses that <laughs> accumulate in the body. And you you have this, you know, what's your load of these creatures? And we'll say, oh, the creatures are active again. <laughs> Uh, and it's very hard to, they live in biofilms and it's hard to totally eradicate them. And they create inflammatory stress, which lowers detox and that allows you to build up metals and other toxins. But the toxins, especially the metals, weaken the immune system and those allow the creatures to dig in even deeper. And the whole process just continues and, you know, death is advancing inch by inch on you yeah. as you go. So you have to reverse that, and I like you know people to sort of pulse back and forth. I'm focusing on detox now, uh, but some of that is going to have some antimicrobial activity, and now I'm focusing on the immune system and then antimicrobial uh, activity, but that's still going to overlap with detox. And you're slowly unwinding these layers, and, and that's what I have in my bio, is peeling back these layers and getting to higher and higher function until you can keep everything in control. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite papers shows that it's not actually, that it's not, not to think of it so much as the toxin load, but the uh, how effective your body is at defending against that toxin load. Yeah. And there, it was a cell culture paper where when the cells mechanisms for detox were working, they could swim in all these metals. But when those mechanisms were inhibited, those metals were killing the cells. And oh. so, yeah, so as you bring up from the inside, when you're upregulating your own detoxification ability, right. it's not just to pull this stuff out. It's to make the cells work better in the face of what's already there. Yeah. Now, secondarily, it's going to also move these things out. But when we do it right, you become resistant to them at the same time you're pushing them out. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, th this message is something that it's just smacks of Dr. Mick Lyon, who he turned turned something about my practice, sort of the way I approach things, turned it on its head. Um, because he always said what, what's happened with, you know, and he lambasted basically this, this nice, simple, it was a really nice acronym and everybody loved it. But what I found was that when I questioned practitioners, not one practitioner ever adhered to this nice, simple commercial acronym ever what they would do is they would always <laughs> tweak it. And what he, what he lambasted was the weed, feed, and seed. He said, you should never weed first. You are going to be cycling your patients at a lower ebb. You know, and, and when I questioned practitioners, never, ever did they use weed, feed, and seed. They'd, they would always say, huh. I use weed, feed, and seed, but I dot, dot, dot. <laughs> and yeah. what, what Mick Lyon did was basically change that on its head. And so we need to be able to give some substrates to these sick patients so that they can actually wake up what you'd say, you know, their own endogenous, you know, antioxidant detoxification systems so that they can handle the load. And he said some people are so sick they can only handle a little a little pinch like chronic fatigue patients. You might only be able to do a, a day of detox a week. They're so sick that you can only right. push at it a little bit. Is that what you do? Is that the sort of 
Uh, yeah, well, we, we we do bring them up slowly. We also see that, you know, when they're at that super sick level, they can't take these strong NRF2 upregulators like lipoic acid. You need to rescue them with uh, softer antioxidants first, uh, yeah. vitamin C, uh, hydrogen water is good for that, feed in, phosphatidylcholine, um, light drainage remedies, bitters and, and spagyric tinctures, and uh, and we use uh, seawater minerals, and we're slowly restoring some integrity, and then we're bringing in some glutathione, you know, small amounts, and then we move in as they get stronger and stronger, then we move to... to uh, more strongly detox-stimulating compounds. But one of the most important things that we found was there are things that can create stability. So why do those chronic people, chronic fatigue people have such a problem? We used to say, oh, it's a Herxheimer reaction. Well, they're having uh, hypersensitivity reactions yeah. mostly to the things that you're giving them. It's you rarely that you're moving too many toxins. It's that the thing that you're giving them is perceived as a toxin, and that's either at a neurological level or an immune level. Yeah. And at a neurological level, they're having glutamate system activation, and we use CBD or GABA for stabilizing that. CBD is probably the strongest. And if they're having immune level uh, hypersensitivities, then DIM is very good. DIM uh, moves the immune system from the TH2, TH17 hypersensitivity reactions that the sick people are getting towards T regulatory activity. That's the same thing you're trying to do with probiotics is enhance T regulatory, the peacemaking aspect of the immune system. And uh, the nanoemulsion DIM is very good at doing that. So we've learned to incorporate those uh, to help create some stability in the system as we're titrating up. Right. So are you going to be teaching uh, delegates of the symposium maybe about, um, let's say, way markers of um, how to measure benefit of success? If you, I say benefit of success, I think, think that's a tautology. <laughs> um, are, you going to be, yeah, yeah. are you going to be teaching practitioners about how to measure objectively how well their patients are getting and indeed teaching them how to look for red flags to say, whoa, 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 back off, back off, and do something different here. Yeah, you know, it's going to be a little bit more clinical uh, clinical markers, more than measured markers. Right. Uh, there's, so many, there's so many things that you can see clinically much easier than you can measure them. We only have measurements for a fraction of what's going on in the body. Right. And so even though I run a testing lab, I am always telling people to look at the clinical markers. So, uh, for instance, when I'm talking about neuroinflammation, now I'm trying to get the liver to dump correctly into the GI tract. Through, So it's got to be a liver reaction coupled to moving the bile through yeah. the gallbladder into the GI tract and then binding the toxin in the GI tract so with, the, with the toxin binders. Yep. And if you're not doing that right, you're going to see certain symptoms. You're going to see skin expression, rashes, and things like that. You're going to have more neurological, more neuroinflammation if you're not doing that successfully because the liver, if it can't go into the bile, actually dumps back into the blood. 
And when it dumps back into the blood, you'll get more movement up to the brain, you'll get movement out to the skin, and you'll get more stress on the kidneys. And so you look, are you seeing water retention? That means the kidneys, instead of getting out through the GI tract, you're taking it over to the kidneys. Now you're stressing the kidneys. Are you seeing it go out through the skin? That means you're not getting it out through the liver. Are you seeing the neurological pain go up? Well, now we need to, any of those mean we need to bring in more bitter compounds and get the the GI the the gallbladder moving better uh, means we have to support kidney at the same time. So I'm gonna lay out like here's the process to drain the toxins out. Here are all the pathways they can go out. We want them to go this way, but when they get short circuited, they go this way. And here are the symptoms to look for if they're not going the right direction. Right. This is I mean this is the stuff that clinicians need. Um, and and I yeah, got and I got to like, say, there, there, there's certain times when I guess you, you're going to need to do a test. I'm all yeah. for I'm all for judicial use of tests because <laughs> people waste so Absolutely. much money on testing. It's sometimes you need a baseline and a treatment level. I get it, but we've seen. I mean, the perfect example is vitamin D. We've wasted millions of the Australian healthcare dollar, 117 million dollars per year. We used to waste, and in one year of not being able to to write it willy nilly, in one year they saved 47. I think it was 47 million dollars. It, it's <laughs> it's just a, it's an example of relevant testing and wasting of money when you just go overboard. Yeah, there's certain things you just can't even measure. So, I mean, there's so little we can measure in kidney function. Uh, people are going to have major pain in their kidneys, and yet all you have to look at is glomerular filtration. It can be just fine. Yeah. In the mercury testing that we do, glomerular testing can be perfect, but you're not moving any mercury out to the kidney because those Sorry. are actually active transporters in the proximal tubule. They don't have anything to do with glomerular filtration. And so in cases, you know, and, and you know, I may be getting very little uh, flow of toxins through the kidney and into, I mean, through the liver into the gallbladder, yet you don't see any markers in uh, from, uh, you know, liver enzyme the tests all look fine. And so... These kind of things often are best just done clinically because uh, all the signs of whether it's working or not are there. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. Chris, I could talk to you all day. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's so many tangents I could go off here, but our time, <laughs> our time has to come to an end. I think the call is just attend the 2017 symposium. It's just it's a must. If you're doing any sort of detox, you need to be doing it correctly so that this stuff gets out. I know it's been said before. I get it, but people need to know what they're doing and why. And I love the way that you go into these cellular mechanisms of what's happening, what to look for if it's not working right, so that, as you say, you can peel off those layers of the onion until the body rights itself. So well done. And I look forward to welcoming you back to Australia uh, to speak at the 2017 Bioceutical Symposium in Sydney. Thank you. I look forward to coming out there. Excellent, Chris. Can't wait. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. This podcast was proudly brought to you by the 2017 Bioceuticals Research Symposium.